Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes for another book overview. We are in the book of Daniel this week, and it's one that I can't believe we haven't already talked about, Daniel. It is a wild ride. It has some of the most famous, I suppose, stories in the first part and some of the most cryptic prophecies in the second half. It surprises me a little bit that there's not uh, more done on Daniel for both of those reasons. And I guess there there is a lot done on Daniel. But if you think about Old Testament books, it really has some of the best of both worlds. You get really mm-hmm. compelling stories that you can teach at Vacation Bible School. And then you have prophecies that the church has disputed over and argued about and thought about for thousands of years. So it's really a great combo of everything you would want in an Old Testament book. That's exactly right. And firmly rooted in history. I know when we get to the prophecy portion, we're going to talk about apocalyptic visions and, uh, you know, how does that play into the quote end times uh, views of several people. But as far as the book itself and even the prophecies themselves, they're very firmly rooted in the historical reality of Daniel's time and the time between Daniel and Jesus. Yeah, this has got to be one of your favorite books for the historical aspects. There's a lot in this book that we can confirm historically. And there are a lot of people in this book that we can confirm historically. And then, like there are all over the Bible, there are little puzzles that are difficult to figure out exactly what this is referring to in history. And some of these places, we have a lot of information we don't have this information, so it's hard to figure out where it fits, and that makes for really interesting studying. It really does. The book of Daniel, I, I like it, and then we'll jump into the context, but one of the reasons I like it is it's not one of those, if you have ever seen any fantasy movies, there's always a prophecy in the fantasy movie, and it's always inexplicable and could probably come true in a you know hundred different ways. And it's just, you know, at some time a savior will come and, you know, this sort of a thing. But Daniel's prophecies are really almost a roadmap. It's God taking heavenly spiritual things and weaving them into the actual, for Daniel, future history of the world. And so mm-hmm. you talk about God becomes flesh and lives among us. This is where it begins. You begin to see the Messiah in the context of geopolitics from the 500s to the time of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we're going to do a little background setup on this book, One of the things you have to know is why it is where it is in the Old Testament, because that can be a little misleading as to what time period we're dealing with. So it it comes on the heels of the major prophets, as we sometimes call them, which would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And the way the rest of the Old Testament is arranged is typically by length, although there uh, there are a couple of examples of that not being true. Now, time-wise, Daniel starts pretty close to where the book of Ezekiel takes place. But because Daniel lives so long, it goes almost to the end of the Old Testament in terms of the later material that we have. And for this reason, and because there's a propensity in some, some schools of scholarship to take anything prophetic and date it after the events that happen so that it really isn't prophetic anymore— Right. Some people date Daniel as the last book of the Old Testament. 
um, sometime way after these events happened, maybe even during the second century BC. But the events take place all through the sixth century BC. And uh, well, it's going to be after a lot of the stuff that you read in the Minor Prophets after this book in the order of the Bible, but chronologically, it takes place after them. Right. This is winding down near the end. I do want to say one thing about scholars, liberal scholars dating this very late. And I, th I think this is ironic. So think about this for a second. You have these prophecies in Daniel, and they map so well to history from 539 BC all the way down to the time of Christ. I mean, they map so well that liberal scholars say this has to be written afterwards. How else could this be so accurate? Now, obviously, that's a presupposition that prophecy doesn't exist, but it is a testimony that conservative and liberal scholars alike agree that Daniel's content maps the history uncannily. Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's an important thing to remember is there are always reasons that would lead you to make a statement like that. It's not just animus against traditional dating. It's the remarkable prediction, if in, if in fact it is a prediction, that would lead some people to say, well, it couldn't have possibly been a prediction then. Right. That's a testimony to how good it is. Well, so where are we and when are we? So uh, on the major prophets, by the way, you've got, and I'm rounding this off, but Isaiah, think Isaiah in the late seven, 700s, and then the rest of them, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, about 100 years later, think around 600. And so what's happening in the 600s when Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are around is you have this power in the north, Babylon. And the power in the south is Egypt. And in 607 to 605 BC, there's a big battle, kind of a, you know, we're just going to have a throwdown here between Babylon and Egypt. And Nebuchadnezzar, who is, the, he will quickly be in 605, the king of Babylon, defeats the Egyptians at a decisive battle. And then he comes sweeping down into the Middle East and plucking up these countries. And so he comes to Judea, comes to Israel, if you will. And in 605, he uh, comes in the reign of Jehoiakim. He comes and he besieges Jerusalem. And of course, they capitulate to him. And one of the things he does is he takes some of the best and brightest of the young people back to Babylon to be trained as administrators. And you uh, just preached a sermon about Daniel chapter six, I think. And one of the points you made was he took kids maybe 10 to 15 years old and brought them back, put them in college, so to speak, for three years, and then turned them into administrators. Well, Daniel is one of those boys that was taken in 605. And then to fast forward, as you said, Daniel's going to live through all of the Babylonian kings all the way down to 539. That's 66 years later when the Babylonians are themselves conquered. And so he's going to span quite a bit of time. But as our story opens, he's a very young man taken to Babylon in 605 BC. This is a period of particularly turbulent geopolitical action with the fall of the Assyrians previous to this, the rise of the Babylonians, 
the Medes and the Persians, and shortly after the Greeks. And it's not surprising that you actually have a lot of interest in this area uh, of the world and in this area of history in secular history. And right. one of the resources that I think was really interesting on this topic is uh, Hardcore History has three podcasts on the King of Kings, which is on Cyrus. But it tells this whole story about the transition of empires. Of course, we remember a lot of this from movies like 300 that celebrate the Spartans who stand off against this empire uh, later on, obviously, in the story of Daniel. But it's these same players who are um, conquering and being conquered and ruling and subjecting peoples. And they each do it a little bit different way. And you get to see that some in the book of Daniel. Daniel has the rare ability to transcend a couple of the changes in these empires and advise some of the most powerful people in the world over the span of you know, 60 plus years of his active leadership. And so you start the book when he's a young boy and you end chapter six when he's probably in his 80s. And he is in a leadership position almost the entire time from what we know. Right. Which is pretty remarkable that he is somebody who lives a faithful life, trusting God throughout his entire life, being a foreigner and exile. He is not surrounded by other Jews. He's not surrounded by other people who believe in God. He is in a very different religious and social culture. And the first six books tell a lot of stories about this theme, how to stay uh, committed to God in a foreign land. And I, I think this book will just get more relevant as time goes on and people feel more like outsiders in their own land religiously. Daniel is a tremendous book to look to of what it looks like to be faithful and to be uh, involved socially, politically, culturally in an area where people do not believe in God like we do. Yes, I think if you think about it, the, the first four chapters are Daniel, and he's serving the great king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter five is serving the last Babylonian king, basically telling him that you're the last Babylonian king and you're toast. But then chapter six, which you preached on, and I would urge people to listen to that because it is not your it's not your uh, children's ministry story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's got far bigger implications than that. And you bring those out really well. But chapter six is serving Cyrus, the king of kings. And so he bookends his career as a politician. I mean, if you want to think about it, he's effectively in political service. And he is uh, bookends his career serving two of the most famous kings of ancient history. Mm -hmm. And I just think... It probably behooves us to give some thought to how did he navigate being faithful, surrounded by a world that was universally hostile to his ideas? Mm -hmm. And how did he serve so well and so faithfully? Why was he successful, given that he did not compromise his beliefs? I think Daniel is right. It probably should be a bigger hero for us right now than he is. Mm hmm. You know, one of the interesting features of the book itself is not just this uh, kind of literature change in the middle. Uh, you also have a language change in this book that you don't see in other places. I think there's a few verses outside of this, but basically you don't see this happen in any other place. The book of Daniel changes to Aramaic in chapter two, verse four, at least in the, the best manuscripts that we have. And right. it doesn't switch back until the beginning of chapter eight. So right. what's kind of interesting about that is there's a quote that's delivered in Aramaic, which is itself kind of a curious 
thing in this text that they would be speaking this way. But in chapter two, verse four, the, the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. And then the quote goes on, but the text actually doesn't change back to Hebrew until chapter eight. And even that is a little sense of the confluence of worlds that you have going on in this book. You have a little bit different. It's not just that Daniel's in a different situation than most other Jews throughout the Old Testament. You even see a language change in this book that gives you the sense of things are just not quite what they were before the exile. This is not Jerusalem anymore. This is not the people of God all together following the cloud or the pillar of fire, having a king or having a judge. They are strangers in a foreign land now. And even the language of the book reflects that. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of conjecture as to why this happens, but I'll just make, I mean, and that's interesting, but probably not germane as to why the switch, why it begins in Hebrew, ends in Hebrew, you know, what the context of, of which parts in Aramaic and why it might be in Aramaic. But one point I would make is this is the crux of the change of power. So the, the Jews spoke Hebrew up until the exile and Aramaic was more of the global language of trade, if you will. It's related to Hebrew, but it's not quite the same. It's another Semitic language. And so it is similar, but it is the more common lingua franca of the day. And after this time, leading up to the time of Jesus, you'll find that not very many Jews in the time of Jesus actually spoke Hebrew or read Hebrew. It was Aramaic at that time. And so all the Jews had been assimilated into this international order, if you will. And one way to look at the exile is the Jews being taken out of their own kingdom and brought into the world at large, and in fact, scattered around the world at large. And so Daniel becomes, in a sense, I think, a prototype of the Jews to come. And that is, you will no longer live in your own land, speaking your own language, free to follow your own rules. You mm -hmm. will live as uh, the prophecy to Abraham was, strangers in a strange land. Right. And most people will pick up on or remember that Jesus likely spoke Aramaic. Right. Uh, and of course, there's disputes about this. The Gospels that we have are in Greek, but the people probably spoke Aramaic. So it really is this transition point that leads us up to the first century, mm -hmm. both in a prophetic sense and in a cultural sense. So let's touch on a couple of these stories in the first part of Daniel. In chapter one, uh, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rack, Shack, and Benny, if you've watched the VeggieTales episode, are taken to Babylon. They are trained up in the palace, and they make him, they immediately make a decision to choose God's way over the ways of Babylon. And so they go on an all-water and vegetable diet. And uh, they ask if they can do that, and they say yes. And then at the end, they're tested, and uh, their appearance and their knowledge and uh, their performance are better than any of the other youths from the surrounding conquered peoples. That really sets the tone for all of these narrative stories. This, the, the point, the details are different, but the point of these stories is almost always to show that faithfulness to God is the right thing, even when it costs you. And in some of these cases, it doesn't cost them. And in some cases, it does cost them. And the point is, they stay faithful to God no matter what. They, they cannot control the outcomes, but they can control their actions. And so they decide to remain faithful, come what may. And then there's these great stories of deliverance where God saves them because of that. Uh, but what the only thing they can control is going to God, praying, staying faithful. And so starting in chapter one, you see that when they're kids. And you're going to see Daniel do this later in chapter six when he's thrown into the lion's den. 
But you're going to see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do this again in chapter 3 when they're thrown into the fiery furnace and God saves them. So it's it's interesting to remember, we tell these stories in isolation. We, we kind of tell them like one-off stories. But you got to remember that Daniel and his three friends knew each other. They were probably around each other. They were navigating political careers, and they had this common bond together because they were Jews and because they shared a faith in the God of Israel that not a lot of people did. And so the stories branch off, but it's likely that they were in communication with each other, talking to each other, working together throughout most of these stories. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, in chapter two, when Daniel comes to prominence by interpreting, not only interpreting, but telling Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interpreting it at the end of of chapter two, you see that Nebuchadnezzar paid homage to Daniel. Like, wow, you, you not only interpreted my dream, you told me what the dream was. And he gave Daniel high honors, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men. And then Daniel made a request to the king. And so the king appointed Daniel's three friends over uh, the affairs of the province of Babylon. So the, the four of them were were together. And then, of course, you move into chapter three and you see his three friends, their faith is also tested. But I, I think you're right, Cole. These are not just one-off stories. This is the story of these four young men navigating life in, in an atmosphere that's not conducive to being faithful to God. Mm -hmm. Well, I obviously love the fiery furnace story. I love that uh, in that story, you, they give the really famous and compelling response to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we will not bow down to you. And our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to change our minds. We're not going to bow down right. to your image. That's just such a great faith story. And then Daniel in chapter six is thrown in the lion's den because he won't stop praying to the God of Israel and the people uh, that plot against him find that out. And he's thrown in there. And in both cases, uh, God doesn't just save them. And it's interesting. God doesn't save them before they get in the lion's den or the fiery furnace. He saves right. them in the midst of the fiery furnace and the lion's den. And in both cases, he does it with an angel or in the fiery furnace, someone who looks like a son of man. What's your take on these appearances in both of these stories? This is something that people really speculate a lot about in the book of Daniel. What's your take on what's going on here or why God chose to do it that way? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I have a couple of opinions. I don't know how. Uh, how dogmatic I'd be about this, but I do think you you made the greatest observation, and that is God typically does not prevent the difficulties because he has a purpose in the difficulties, and so he's with us in the difficulties. So I'm going to take the low view of these messengers, these human figures, and say that this is these angels of God are sent to them to to symbolize and actually to be. God with us. In other words, mm -hmm. God meets us and is with us in our trials. So you could read more into it than that, but I don't think you can read less into it than that. I would agree. Some people, I think I said, son of man, I'm thinking about later in the book of Daniel. In verse 25 mm -hmm. of chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, one of them has the appearance of the son of the gods. And uh, then later you have Daniel say that the Lord sent his angel to, to shut the mouths of the lions. Some people like to read these appearances in the Old Testament as 
kind of a preview or a pre-incarnate Christ. I think there are some theological issues with that because in the New Testament, we get the sense that the pre-existent second person of the Trinity, the Son, takes on flesh. He becomes incarnate at the incarnation when he is born. So it would be, there are some things to work out if this is a a pre-incarnate Christ coming down kind of in a proto body that there are just some hitches. I think there, there's no hitches in my mind that you see there are supernatural beings all through the Bible. They're not gods; they're created, but they are above nature in the sense that they can do things that human beings cannot do. Angels, messengers, you see at the end of the book of Daniel, this man in the linen garments, you see him all right. over the place in the prophetic writings. And I really would love to know what's up with this guy. I would love to know, you yeah. know, Ezekiel shows up, Daniel shows up. I mean, he, he's he's a prominent figure of God's created but not earthly beings who are doing his will on the earth. I tend to read these appearances that way, that God sent angels, creatures like the you know cherubim that come and do his bidding mm-hmm. to protect his people. It would be nice to know more about them, but we really don't. Right. I agree with that completely. I think... It is God literally being with us. But, you know, back to uh, the the three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when you think about them in the furnace, I envision this coming out two different ways. And I, I love what they said. Maybe one of the best phrases in the Bible, our God is able to save us from your hand, but even if he does not, we will not bow down to you. And that's just faith right there. That's like, I don't demand my God save me. I believe he can. But even if he doesn't, I'm going to be faithful. And I can imagine if this story ended differently and they threw him in the furnace and they burned to a crisp and the next scene opens in heaven and here's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and God saying, well done, boys. That was exactly what I needed, uh, needed done. Now, we think, well, wait a minute, this story isn't successful unless God saves them. I don't think so. I think God has a purpose. Sometimes that purpose is that we will die. And sometimes that purpose is that we will not. But I believe the reception in heaven is the same both ways because God's purpose is being fulfilled. Right. And in Revelation, which we'll talk about, there's strong connections between Daniel and Revelation. You do have these Mm -hmm. people coming out with these garments And John says, who are these people? Who's this multitude of people? And the angel that he's with says, these are the people who are coming out of the great tribulation who have lost their lives. And now they're waiting for the consummation of all things. They could have easily been in that group. And we actually don't know what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at the end. We don't know if they ended up being martyred, as we would say, or uh, they, they died, you know, of something else. We have no idea, but they lived their lives like martyrs. They were faithful to God, come what may. And Daniel was the same way. So in chapter two, he interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter four, he tells uh, Nebuchadnezzar about some things that are going to happen. And um, we see Nebuchadnezzar go on this crazy uh, journey, being like an animal and eating grass and turning to the Lord. This is pretty bizarre. This actually fits closely chapter two and chapter four fit closely with the second half of Daniel, which is his prophetic visions. What, what's your read on what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar there? You know, I, first of all, I like the way Daniel introduces this. Daniel is going to 
uh, interpret this dream. And Daniel knows this is not good news. I mean, most of the time the, the interpreter would be killed for saying this, but he says, my Lord, if only this dream was for those who hate you. And if only my interpretation was for your enemies, mm-hmm. meaning this is not good. He's and a shrewd end, guy. He says, huh? He's a shrewd guy. He is. He does a good job. He says, I got to tell you the truth, but you're not going to like this. And at the end of telling him in verse 27, he says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Stop your sins by practicing righteousness and stop your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. So Daniel kind of doubles down on this and says, you can kill me if you want to, but I'm going to tell you straight. Your only hope is to stop sinning. And of course he doesn't. And because of his pride, then this I suppose people think a mental illness came upon him for a season, but the way the text reads, you you don't see it as a random mental breakdown. You really see Nebuchadnezzar being taught that God is the one who makes kings and unmakes kings, and he is the one who who appoints the, the authorities of the earth. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes through this, that's the first thing he says is he understands that the king of kings is the one who uh, who uh, sets kings up and tears kings down. It, he humbles uh, Nebuchadnezzar. I actually think this is the story of God caring enough about Nebuchadnezzar to discipline him, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. How do you read this? Yeah, I, I take it the same way. He humbles Nebuchadnezzar from his pride. Daniel is a faithful messenger. In this sense, Daniel is a prophet, just like Elijah and the other mm-hmm. people that we, we would think of as prophets. He has a role. He has a high political role, but he actually is doing what the prophets always did, which was speaking truth when God told them to speak it. And oftentimes that meant to powerful people, kings, rulers, people that could kill you. This is what Jeremiah did as well. And over and over again, they, they said God's word the way that he told them to say it to the people he told them to say it to. And uh, he calls Nebuchadnezzar to repent, and he calls Darius to repent in the next story in chapter 6. And in both cases, it's not even the prophetic word. It's the suffering and the faithfulness that bring about the conversion afterwards. So in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, after wandering around, um, eating grass like an ox, his body wet with the dew of heaven, hair growing along like eagle's feathers and nails like a bird's claws. At the end of that time, he lifts his eyes to heaven and reason returns, and he blessed the Most High God and praised and honored him who lives forever. Same thing happens in chapter 6. After he comes out of the lion's den, he sees that and he says, your God must be the God of all gods, and nobody should worship anybody but him. And there's a great lesson, you know, we get to spend the whole podcast on these first few chapters because there's a great lesson here on sometimes our best apologetic is not just our rational defense of the faith. It's our faithfulness in adverse circumstances. And when people see us suffering, like we really believe what we believe, their hearts are turned. And I think we would all want people like modern day Nebuchadnezzar's to turn their hearts to God, but what's it going to take? Well, maybe it's going to take some people speaking boldly like this when they could be killed for it. Maybe it's going to take people being sent into the lion's den in order for this message to get through. And so there's, there's a whole encouragement for faithfulness in these first few chapters. But I want to turn our attention to the second half of the book, which is the prophecies of Daniel. And this starts in chapter seven. And uh, I want to point out the way that it begins. It's a little bit of uh, a jolting transition. It says in 
28, Daniel prospers during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. A lot of people think these are the same people. Some people think that uh, they're two different people right next to each other in the timeline. But in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, now we're going back to the timeline in chapter five, where the writing on the wall shows that it's the end of Babylon. Daniel sees a dream laying in his bed, and he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declares, I saw a vision by the night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea. And so from here on out, we launch into these visions. Sometimes they're called night visions. He has them while he's dreaming almost, and sometimes they're just vision visions that he sees about things that are going to happen. And uh, some of these, I really don't want to dive into all the details of these because we, we don't have enough time or enough podcasts to exhaust all that is in these visions. But what I do want to say is if we give a brief overview of these, I think what's most helpful is what are some principles for reading passages like this? Obviously, prophetic literature is difficult, whether it's prophecies against Israel, like you see in Isaiah. Of course, at the end of Isaiah, you see some very futuristic pointed prophecies here where you see things about geopolitical strife and nations and turmoil leading up to the Messiah. What are some ways of reading this if you're not an expert in biblical prophecy, you're not an expert in biblical history and geopolitical history? How do you approach a section like this? So as we go through a couple of these, let's lay out some of these principles that are helpful for reading. Well, one thing that makes Daniel particularly helpful in this is that a couple of these visions are interpreted, at least partially so, and this is one of them. So, for example, in chapter 7, you get the vision basically of four beasts, and one of the things when you see visions like this is you just have to understand that this is symbolic. And by that, I don't mean it's not true. What I mean is he's seeing images that will correspond to real things. So, for example, fast forward into chapter 7, verse 15. And he said, uh, Daniel said, I approached one of those who was standing there to tell me the truth of this. And he made known to me the interpretation of the things. And here's the short version, verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And so we go, oh, well, then it's interpreted. What is the symbolism? These beasts each represent a kingdom that may be around for two or 300 years, but they are representative of kingdoms. And we know that that is the uh, Babylonian kingdom, then the Persian kingdom. This is just a matter of historical record. And then the Greeks under Alexander the Great and following, and then the Romans. And so we know it's these four great kingdoms, and then the various attributes give you some prophetic attributes of those kingdoms. But if you're not an expert in prophecy, you can at least read that and go, oh, this is basically God mapping out the geopolitics of the next few hundred years. Right. And, and these are easy things to look up in a study Bible or a general commentary that you don't even have to get down into the weeds to get the big picture of what's going on in uh, Daniel's time and what's going to take place afterwards. So in chapter seven, like you said, you get this vision of these beasts and the kingdoms, or in, and you actually get that again in chapter eight as well. You get this same kind of thing with these successive kingdoms. Again, he's already predicted this in chapter two in, interpret in interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so there is some, right. there is some similarities across the narrative portion 
and the prophetic portion of the book. Chapter eight, I think, is the easier prophecy to interpret of these, partially because it has an interpretation and partially because it's just so historically clear what's happening in this prophecy and who it's pointing right. to. Uh, so we're going to have a succession of kingdoms after Babylon, and we're going to have the Medo-Persians, and then we're going to have Alexander the Great. And uh, the interpretation makes this pretty obvious who we're talking about here. Now, let's step back from the book of Daniel for a minute and just give a little overview of the significance of Alexander the Great and why he might be important enough to include in this kind of prophecy. Yeah, from a from a redemptive history, I mean, actually, from just secular history, Alexander the Great was a turning point historically. He broke the power of the the Babylonians, then the Persians, and Persian, I think you said in your sermon, rightly so, the Persian Empire was the greatest empire size-wise that had ever been seen to that time, maybe still, uh, but basically the Persian Empire was huge. It was powerful, and so Alexander the Great, born 356 BC, is the one who breaks the power of the Persians and overcomes it with uh, this Greek kingdom. So that in and of itself, it just historically speaking, was powerful. You get one whole civilization, an Eastern civilization like the Persians, displaced by a Western civilization of the Greeks to set up the whole Greco-Roman world. So, so from a secular point of view, this is a turning point culturally in the history of the world. In a spiritual point of view, God uses that. Because one of the things Alexander's going to do is make Greek the common language of all the known world, he and his successors down through the next few hundred years. And Alexander is, and the Romans after him are going to set the stage for Jesus, for all the things that made the gospel the right time for the gospel to come. Alexander the Great kicked that process off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he really paves the way for the time of Christ. And we think about, oh, well, well, but Jesus was born during the Roman period. Yes, politically, uh, he is born during the Roman period, but culturally, right. Greek is still the major cultural influence of the time. And so the Romans paved the roads, but the Greeks had still infiltrated the, the known world with their language and culture and cities and uh, made it possible to have a language that everybody could understand, made it possible for Paul to go out on his missionary journeys and, uh, that mixed with Rome made it for the perfect time for Jesus to come. Now you might be sitting here saying, okay, that's, that's interesting and all. How is it that you guys think, you know, that this is about Alexander the Great. And so I'll just point out one of the principles of reading these texts is to go from what is local, what is known and what is clear towards what is distant in the future and what is unknown and what is unclear. And so the clearest part of this interpretation is in cha uh, chapter eight, verse 21, uh, and, and verse 20, the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. The goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So you have Alexander being the first king of this Greek world, and then when he dies, his kingdom is split up into four less powerful kingdoms. And so historically, this is pretty obvious because it is near to when this prophecy is made. It's very clear about which nations are involved. 
And uh, it's, it's pretty easy to see in the text that this follows with the division of the kingdoms after Alexander. Now, that doesn't prohibit this being fulfilled later. And in other prophetic books, when we've done these overviews, we've talked about a lot of the way that types and prophecies work in the Bible is you have an immediate historical fulfillment, and then you have an amplified or an even greater spiritual and maybe even historical fulfillment later on. So I'm not saying that these can't be fulfilled in multiple ways, but when you see something that is very close to this time period, uh, people would have known and recognized it. It's clear in the text. Start there and say, what could this mean? Probably the rise of Alexander and the fall of his and the splitting up of his kingdom after he dies. Yes. And then it goes on to talk about the Roman Empire after that and how that is probably the greatest, most powerful empire and how it will be broken by God. And he will set up an empire that will never a kingdom that will never end. You just aren't paying attention if you aren't seeing Jesus in that. There's mm -hmm. no way you see anything but Jesus in that. And, the, and you also answer the question, why is this prophecy even here? This right. is God forecasting when and where the Messiah will come. I don't mean the day and the place. I just mean the Persians are going to rule for 200 more years. Then along come the Greeks, and they're going to rule for uh, 250 years, then the Romans are going to come in and they're going to just crush everybody. They keep the Greek culture, but they crush everybody. And just like this prophecy says, then God is going to intervene and he's going to build a kingdom that right. will shatter all the other kingdoms. I mean, you, you, you just can't be paying attention if you don't see that happening. But to your point, no doubt this is fulfilled in that sense. Now ask the question, is this also a template, if you will? And could this then be also referring to something in our future time? Something, think Book of Revelation, uh, seven-year tribulation, Antichrist, and all of that. And I think your point is, it's certainly possible, and it that is kind of a pattern with Jewish uh, prophecy, but don't overlook the fact that it had an immediate purpose, and it had a fulfillment in that time. Mm-hmm. Now, chapter 9 is a little bit different story. Chapter 8 is fairly easy to see what it's pointing to historically. Chapter 9 is probably one of the more discussed pieces of prophecy in the Bible, and I think it's one of the more difficult prophecies. Mm -hmm. But but here's an interesting point. The, the prophecy in chapter 9 is only about you know five verses long, and the whole first part of this chapter is Daniel's prayer to God, confessing his sins the sins of the nation, and asking God to bring his word to pass about returning back to Israel. So don't skip over the prayer at the beginning, which I think is one of the things we're really supposed to take away is that God is the God of history. He shapes kingdoms and nations. He turns the will of people as history goes on for his purposes. And we have a prophecy about what's going to happen. So the prayer part is really interesting. It is something that we should linger on, spend time with. And then the prophecy at the end is something we're studying as well. But don't skip over the prayer uh, and the lessons that we learned there to get to the prophecy. The prophecy is known as the 70 weeks prophecy. And this is interesting even in the name of it, because in verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Very cryptic. 
even the 70 weeks is cryptic because it's not really the word weeks. It's the word for sevens, which can be used to mean weeks, but it can also be used to mean other things. It's, it's literally 70 sevens. So some people take this as 70 sevens in gears, and there's precedent mm-hmm. for doing that. Um, I think we should always look when there's something like this, we should always look for where else something like this is used in scripture. We should let the Bible interpret the Bible. So there's right. two passages that are kind of helpful here. The first one would be in Leviticus chapter 25, where we get the institution of the Jubilee year. And so the Jubilee year is every sev- set of seven sevens of years. So 49 years and you have a day of atonement that starts the year of Jubilee. What is the year of Jubilee? The Jubilee is when things are returned back to justice. Land that has been deeded over or surrendered gets taken back. Slaves are freed. The society resets. Okay, so you have seven sevens of years for a Jubilee, 70 sets of seven with an atonement and a return at the end. Sounds like a Jubilee year. And you have other prophecies in the Bible about the coming of the Messiah being a Jubilee year, actually a Jubilee age, like in Isaiah, uh, you get the year of the Lord's Jubilee, his favor. And so uh, that's one thing. Uh, The other thing I think that's kind of important here is sevens all over the Bible mean completeness, wholeness, whether or not they mean exactly seven. Sometimes they mean the perfect amount of time. So one of the things I thought of is when, when Peter and Jesus are talking about forgiveness and uh, Jesus says 70 times, seven times is how many times you should forgive someone. Well, Jesus doesn't just mean 490 times. He means the total and complete and perfect number of times that you might have to forgive someone that's so beyond what you would think. That's how many times you should forgive. And so there are some people that take this number in that sense of it's longer than you think uh, because they've, they've basically been exiled for one set of 70 years. And he's saying 70 times seven times, a whole complete set of the amount of time you've been exiled. That's what we're talking about in the future. And so there are very different ways of taking this. But even that assertion of 70 weeks has a lot of discussion as to what that even means. Right. Yes. And clearly, the one thing it must mean is it does carry the force of that symbolic idea with it. The idea of the hyper jubilee the idea of the Messiah coming and setting everything right, putting everything back to the way it was intended to be, which is the Jubilee idea. It it can't mean less than that. You you have to hold that no matter what. Now, when you get down into the nitty gritty, I'll just give you probably the most popular way, not necessarily correct, but the most popular way to understand this is those 70 weeks represent 490 years, 77. So 490 years over and uh, you can slice this a couple of different ways and I won't get into the details but basically 483 of those years you can make that work out to where you get to the cross and so you get the prince uh, after 62 weeks an anointed one will be cut off and have nothing anointed one being messiah literally Uh, and so thinking this is Jesus and uh Basically, then it moves forward with the last seven. And some people would say, okay, so we've got our 69 weeks that gets us to Jesus. And the last seven years is actually forecasting way out in the future to the tribulation. If you uh, believe in a seven-year tribulation at the end of time. And so that's one common way to understand this, that Daniel is, is seeing a vision that maps its way to Jesus, first coming, 
and the last seven is the last part of the puzzle before Jesus comes again. So that's, again, I would be hesitant to really be dogmatic about it, but I know people take these prophecies, uh, they hold their interpretations very dearly. That's probably a popular uh, way of looking at it. Right. Yeah. And there, there's definitely uh, people that argue for that with s- several variations and then people that see it totally differently. And uh, of course, we can't get into all of that in this episode. We haven't even done the book of Revelation yet in our book overviews, although I'm looking forward to that. I, I did want to say a couple words about the connection between Daniel and Revelation, because when you read Daniel, you're getting a sense if you've read Revelation, there's some similarities here. And there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel is the most referred to or alluded to book in Revelation. It's not the most quoted book, just outright quoted book in Revelation, Mm -hmm. but there are, uh, G.K. Deal counts 53 references to Daniel in the book of Revelation. So some of these are more subtle than others, but that's more than Isaiah and Psalms and Deuteronomy. And there's, you know, the book of Revelation is made up almost completely of Old Testament, but Daniel is one of the leading influences on the book of Revelation. I think that's because there's continuity in the prophetic visions themselves. So this is telling one continuous Mm -hmm. story from the time of Daniel, the exile, the Messiah, the book of Revelation as an encouragement to the churches, all the way through the end of time uh, in the final visions of Revelation 21 and 22 with the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Uh, One of the reasons I think that is because Daniel chapter 2, one of the references in verse 28, but actually five times in uh, Daniel chapter 2, you get the verb semino, which means to symbolize something. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we we translate it as to explain something. And in Revelation chapter 1, that's exactly what uh, we see going on in the book of Revelation is this is a vision that is being explained symbolically through these visions. And so that's what Daniel was doing with the dream. That's what uh, John is doing on Patmos. That's what we see happening in all these prophetic visions. Another aspect of this is in chapter 12 of Daniel, the way the book actually ends is with a warning from uh, Michael, who is a great prince who will arise. And then many will go to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. So this is clearly a vision of the very end of time. And in fact, this is the only time the phrase everlasting life is used in the Old Testament. It's not the only time that you see resurrection in the Old Testament or that there's an afterlife, although it's not as prominent a theme as it is in the New Testament. You, You do see it. But this is the only place you get this phrase, which is another connection to the book of Revelation, to the prophetic parts of the Gospels when Jesus gives like the Olivet Discourse, for example. But at the end, Daniel is told to shut up the words and seal them in a book until the time of the end. This has some linguistic parallels to the opening of the book of Revelation, which effectively says, now's the time the book is being opened. Here's what Daniel sealed up. Now, it's tempting, and some people do interpret that to mean this actual book, the book of Daniel. Uh, Of course, one of the things about that is the book of Daniel was not sealed up because we're reading it. The time you get a book unsealed is in the book of Revelation in chapters four and five when the scroll is unsealed. And some people think that actually is the book that Daniel wrote down, things that can't be talked about in the prophecies of Daniel. They're for the end times. And the book of Revelation opens with the things that are soon to take place, kind of a now's the time to continue the story feel. And that's, that's really a good way to read Revelation with the rest of the Bible is now's the time to talk about some of these things. 
that we're going to reference that you didn't get the whole story then. We're going to give you a more complete story now. In, in terms of fulfilling prophecies in Daniel, though, I want us to end with the clearest fulfillment of prophecy in Daniel, which is in chapter seven, and it's pointing towards the Messiah. So you've already mentioned a couple of times that the whole, the whole timeline of Daniel and his prophecies telescopes towards the coming of Jesus Christ um, a little over 500 years later after the end of this book. And I think the easiest place to see that is in chapter seven. Would you agree that that's one of the major focal points of Daniel? Yes, I would. And uh, along with it, the message that God is in control of this process, not the kings of the earth. So yes, I do agree that the clearest, I mean, you get this, let me just do a quick run through the Old Testament. In Genesis, you get this little bitty hint of Jesus, the proto-evangelium, that at some point, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent. Then 600 years later with Moses, you get the prophecy in Deuteronomy that I will raise up a prophet like you from among your people, which is clearly a reference to the Messiah. Then, of course, you get into, say, 700 years later with Isaiah, and you get a better picture now, the suffering servant, and you get this picture of the Messiah. And now, a hundred years later, uh, you get Daniel, and God is fleshing it out even more. He's telling you about this Messiah, but he's actually telling you about everything that's going to happen leading up to the Messiah. So I think your point's really well made, is that over time, God progressively reveals more and more, tells more and more of the story, if you will, to his people. And then I think you're absolutely read that right about the the uh, book that's that Daniel's told to seal up. And he's I, I, the natural reading of that to me is, Daniel, here's some things you've seen, and it's not yet time to tell that story. So just hold that thought. And of course, the book of Revelation, now you read it and you go, oh my goodness, this is very detailed description of what's going to happen. So I, I think that makes perfect sense. And then along with it, the way Daniel tells his story and the way God acts is not only is this going to happen, not only is God predictive, here's what's going to happen before the Messiah gets here. He's also sovereign, as in I am the one orchestrating all of this. Right. Yeah, chapter seven fulfills all of those themes. It is God sovereignly working his plan to bring his Messiah and to bring his people to himself for eternity. So if you if you start in chapter eight, Daniel has this vision and he sees that they were placed, the thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. This resonates with so many images of right. God's glory, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So in Ezekiel, especially when the throne comes down and the glory of God descends, you see something that looks like this in Revelation in the heavenly throne room. You see someone that looks like this. Christ's appearance actually in Revelation 1 looks mm -hmm. kind of like this. But the Ancient of Days, I think we take to be the Father. And then you have another figure enter in verse 13. I saw them in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days 
and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This sounds a lot like the passages in Isaiah chapter 9, Psalm Mm -hmm. 2, of this king who's going to come and reign on God's behalf. And Jesus in Mark chapter 14 and in the other synoptics actually quotes this passage about himself. He's before the Pharisees, and they say, are you the Messiah? And he says, you will see the Son of Man uh, ascending before the throne. And they tear their clothes, and they say, this is blasphemy. We don't even need these trumped-up charges that we brought. This is blasphemy right from his mouth because— They knew this prophecy, and they knew that this person is God's Messiah. This is God come to earth to save his people and reign forever. And so for a human being to say that, if he's wrong, is the highest blasphemy you could ever commit. But if you're right, right, then it's a fulfillment of what God's been working towards for all of history. And so that's kind of the calculus that uh, the Pharisees were making. And, of course, they made the wrong choice. Right. Yeah, I think you've characterized this book really well in the sense that the prophetic portion of it, as as much as we like to get lost in the details, and that's fun and it's interesting, but don't get lost in the woods. Every now and then we need to step back and see how awesome God is and what he's doing here. And that the there's not really any argument about the big uh, issue, you know, the big fulfillments here. It's usually quibbling about the smaller details. But if we just step back, you don't have to be a prophecy expert to read this and say, yeah, this is God sovereignly orchestrating the coming of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. I think the summary statement that we should take away from the book is in this same vision in uh, right after he says this king's kingdom will never be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. And that's Mm -hmm. the message that we're left with is that God's Messiah will come. He will bring God's people back to God. He will possess the kingdom. And that kingdom will rule over all the kingdoms of the earth forever, and ever. And the kingdom and the dominion, it says in verse 27, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. And our message is this kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions will serve and obey him. That's the future vision. We can disagree about when and exactly how that's going to happen. But as Christians, this is what we believe is going to happen in the end. The kingdom is delivered to Christ, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we who are in him are going to reign with him over all the kingdoms of the earth forever and ever, just as God intended it in the beginning. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.